Houston, Canavan, Christensen and Kelly, the company Morrison keeps. Morrison blames developing countries to avoid climate action. COVID takes more lives as lockdowns are extended in Melbourne and New South Wales. And the good news is about whiskey-fueled trucks. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison from Central Victoria and joining me from locked down New South Wales is the ever magnanimous Van Batham. Van, how are you doing? Oh my God, I miss you so much. I miss you so much. And the worst thing about being in New South Wales is the sense that there is no tangible hope that I will see you sooner rather than later. Yes, we will have to talk about COVID later in this podcast. It, it remains uh, the the number one topic, I suppose. And, you know, Van, this is our 50th episode. We've been doing this show for a year now. Can you believe it? Yes, I can believe it because time <laughs> is, is, is immediate and fragile uh, simultaneously given the fact that I just seem to exist in a perpetual state of lockdown. So 50 episodes could be 5,000 or could be five. None of it means anything anymore. <laughs> Well, I have to say a big thank you to the 125,000 plus downloaders of the week on Wednesday. Uh, It's been an amazing run so far. Uh, Of course, the whole time we've been in COVID and pandemic land, which, you know, if you'd said to me 12 months ago, A, you'll still be doing the week on Wednesday, uh, B, You'll have over 5,000 subscribers across Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Google, and see that the pandemic will still be going and there'll still be lockdowns for nearly half the people in the country. I'm not sure I'd have believed you, Van, to be frank. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd have believed you. Yep. Look, I I remember you and I being at home going, you know, oh, we'll give it six weeks. We'll just see how it goes. And it's just been so incredible. And I think it's really kept us alive doing this podcast, quite frankly, because we've been able to engage with a community of people who share our values, who engage with what we have to say, who drive our stories, who say, talk about this. Are you going to talk about this? Are you going to engage with this? And it's given us a place to put our political frustration, basically, and create a space where other people can share their frustration as well. And I just want to thank everyone for for giving us this opportunity to have these discussions and for them to be meaningful and to be part of a broader public conversation because of the sponsorship we get from Australian unions. And I just want to acknowledge the fact that to be sponsored by the trade union movement is just incredible and means so much to us. But the idea that we're seen as being part of the infrastructure of what unions fight for and campaign for and their values that means everything to me and that sense of connection has really helped me keep going through what I'm going to say, Ben, have been the hardest times of my life. Yeah, look, there's no question that getting messages from people who've joined their union after listening to the work on Wednesday is the the happy moments of my day um, and I'm really pleased that those moments have been increasing in number uh, as the show has continued to reach more and more people uh, because the listeners uh, of the show are sharing it with their friends, with their family, with their colleagues and co-workers. You know, the number of people who write to us, Van, um, expressing how proud they are to have joined their union, how proud they are to be in their union, to have taken action as part of their union with their colleagues and co-workers it's a it's a real it's a real lift i gotta say in in what's been a very hard year for not just for us of course but for many many people so yeah big thanks to australian unions and don't forget if this is your first time listening to the show welcome to the week on wednesday hello genuinely welcome Welcome. <laughs> we do genuinely mean that. And we do genuinely encourage you to join your union. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W. That's the customized link. That, may, that link allows us to know that people are listening to the show and taking the action of joining their union. And congratulations to everyone who has done that. Um, it's, a, it's a remarkable just how many hundreds of people uh, at this point have now joined their union. Uh, after listening to the week on Wednesday. It's very oh, humbling 
very humbling it, thing to, to think about. It absolutely means the world to us and it brings us such happiness. Like Ben and I were talking before about this incredible letter we got from someone who said, you know, I've been working this job for years and I got all of these newsletters that talked about the things the union had done and I just never got around to joining. And after listening to the podcast, went, what am I doing? Of course I should join the union and did. And we were like, we're into you. We are so into you. That is That brings us hope and it brings us joy because this is the thing, like, you know, the enormous amount of political frustration in this country at the moment about inaction on climate change, on um, an inaction to create jobs, good jobs for people, about the fact that wages are not growing, about attacks on social services like health and, other for- and welfare and all of these things, you know, the limitations in our system mm. which have been revealed by the coronavirus crisis. Well, the union movement is fighting for those values all the time. If you're at home going, I am really terrified about the IPCC report about climate change. I am really terrified about job opportunities for my kid or whether they'll be able to get a decent education or whether we will be able to access the health or welfare support we need in the community where we live. Then join a union because unions are fighting for those things all the time and they have the resources and the personnel and the campaign experience to push these issues on your behalf. You become part of the fight for the things that you want when you join a trade union. That's right. Unions are their members, right? So it is. it really is, you know, the opportunity to make the change you want to see in the world. And, and that's... That's the great message that I, I really love uh, about this show is that while there are a lot of difficult topics we deal with and, and we poke our noses into the, the dark corners of some of the political world, you know, we do come back to at the end of the day, every person can make a difference, can be part of positive change because, frankly, you know, and we're going to talk about, um, you know, the company Morrison's keeping it uh, in this show today because, you know, there are people out there who want to negatively exploit people's fear. They, they, they're pushing um, an old-fashioned right-wing fascist barrow, and they're using people's fear and uncertainty that they've often helped create to to make themselves powerful, to make themselves influential, in some cases, to make themselves very wealthy. And and Van, I, you know, let's talk about that. Let's talk about you know, Brian Houston and Matt Canavan and George Christensen and Craig Kelly. I mean, these are the people that um, Scott Morrison is surrounding himself with, who are part of his government uh, and who are really um, pushing some of these these fear-mongering, these foreign propagandist approaches that fly in the face of the sorts of things that you and I believe in. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you want to start, Dallin? Where do you want to start? <laughs> well, look, let, let's start with Brian Houston because I think, you know, the, the, Brian Houston is, um, as people will know or may not know, but he is the head of the Hillsong Church. He's a preacher and a pastor, someone who Scott Morrison personally thanked in his um, maiden speech to Parliament, uh, who Scott Morrison tried to get an invite for to go to the state dinner at the White House under Trump uh, and who has now been charged with covering up sexual offences against a child, offences that were committed um, by his father, I believe, Van. Yep, by his father, and this has been known for a very, very long time. So, yeah, I mean, this is the thing, isn't it, that Scott Morrison actually called Brian Houston his mentor in his maiden speech to Parliament, he has a long association with the Hillsong Church and so have many other Australian politicians, John Howard, Bob Carr, you know, everybody was happy to wave and sing at Hillsong. And it's given that particular organisation, which, by the way, I spent a year undercover in, everybody, more than happy to tell some tales. I've met Brian Houston. I'm sure he doesn't remember me. Very persuasive, very charismatic man. Not deserving of special privileges. How interesting that Brian Houston was able to leave the country and go to preach in Mexico at a time when, for the rest of us, the border has been shut, but was given special permission just a few weeks ago to leave the country and spread the word of Jesusing um, that apparently is, is, accepts uh, covering up child sexual abuses, which he, is not. He of course, he of course claims innocence of this. I mean, that flies in the face of evidence given to the Royal Commission um, uh, in 2015, which 
said quite clearly that that he had um, done this, uh, and and the suggestion in that is that he was admitted to to hiding it. Um, he's now claimed innocence of any offence. Um, you know, that's the kind of person that Morrison's getting spiritual guidance from. It, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty scary. And then when you think about the people in his government, um, you know, let's talk about let's talk about um, Matt Canavan uh, and and George Christensen Van because they Matt Canavan is going to be on Q and A on Thursday. Matt Canavan is going to go on Q and A and what the media tour has he has been on. Matt Canavan, who is you know the Australian Matt Gates. Um, and looks rather a lot like him, which is kind of interesting. If you don't know who Matt Gates is, do look him up. Um, was on Steve Bannon's War Room podcast. We talked about this the other day. Steve yeah. Bannon is a neo-fascist. Steve yeah. Bannon is a neo-fascist. He believes in a white ethno-state. You know, that's not a person who somebody from wonderfully moderate mainstream Australia really should be hanging out with. Kind of indicates that maybe Maddie isn't so moderate after all. You know, you legitimise fascists, you might as well just join them, I reckon. Well, um, and this is this is one of the issues that I have, right, is that Matt Canavan is a, essentially a serial cosplay politician. Like he dresses up, he dresses up like a farmer, he dresses up like a tradie. He dresses up like a miner. You know, he dresses up like he's a human being. Um, and he... When and he's really impre- a lizard in a human suit. <laughs> well, I get the impression that he's he's actually, you know, likes playing with Steve Bannon. He's gone on there again, you know. He's been on there a couple of times now, this Steve Bannon podcast, and he's he's now spouting these far right talking points these these foreign propagandist talking points about covid and masks and lockdowns i mean he went on the abc and spouted you know the cost of covid admitted in the same interview that he'd estimated the numbers basically made them up and yet he's not only was he not challenged on that he's then been invited to go on q and a like the guy, the guy is prepared to cosplay to get himself in in the headlights, right? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I've been posting memes. I'll post it again to go with this podcast for months. Of Matt Canavan dressed up like a tradie. Matt Canavan dressed up like a farmer. Matt Canavan dressed up like a miner. He's not any of these things. He did economics at UQ. He worked for the Productivity Commission, and he was a senior like executive at KPMG, which is an international consulting firm. Like farmer, miner, tool man. These are but costumes. And this outrageous association with hard right is really dangerous and they make Canavan and Christensen who we'll talk about in a moment and Craig Kelly of course they're people who are actively spreading foreign influence operations in Australia Australia yeah. doesn't have anything like a, a you know a mass movement of anti-mask wearing Australians have been really compliant because we're not in these sort of poison sealed off information bubbles that they have in places like the United States where it's Fox News or Bust or OAN or Newsmax or any of those other nutty far-right cable channels. You know, we are a cosmopolitan society where we listen to one another, where we take advice, and we're very pragmatic as a people. This is sociological fact. You know, for all the yahoos who did break lockdown and went out on the streets, there were only a couple of thousand. After months and months and months and months of organising, that's the best that they could do. And they, and essentially, if you weren't one of those protesters, if you weren't motivated to go and do that action, you were militantly opposed to them. So I don't want anyone to think that Matt Canavan is speaking for a large majority of people. He is merely pushing a fringe position, which he has. He is literally repeating talking points that come from the American far right. He is literally hanging out with American neo-fascists when he goes on Steve Bannon's show. Like that is what's going on. This is not Australian, not remotely Australian. There is no Australian movement that backs this in or supports it. No, and he's not the only one, though, is he, Van? Because that fringe element, 
that 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 foreign influenced far right um, swallowers of foreign propaganda, um, as small a group as they are in Australia, they're actually massively overrepresented in the Morrison government because there's not only Canavan, there's also George Christensen, who yesterday uh, actually. I think much to much to Albo and the ALP's surprise, um, was chastised by the House of Representatives because he got up and spouted the same foreign talking points. You know, he did this on Monday in the in the party room in the in the party room sitting of the government. You know, which is a closed door meeting where he where he railed and used all the Bannon talking points, um, and. I don't know what Morrison and his government thought was going to happen. Maybe they just didn't care. But, of course, Christensen gets up in the parliament then, which is on Hansard and available on television and all the rest of it, and says the same thing, right, because he's totally indoctrinated into the into being a mouthpiece for these foreign, foreign propagandists. Oh, yeah, and, and he's because I've been writing this book about QAnon, so I've been in this community for a year undercover, observing them, you know, getting into their spaces, finding out what's going on. So obviously there's the Venn overlap with um, the anti-vaxxers is now almost complete. And I can tell you this stuff is coming straight from the United States. It's being parroted by people like Governor Ron DeSantis and Chip Roy and all these American lunatics who, who the result of which and this sort of no one can force me to get the jab, blah, 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 they've all had the jab. We know they've all had the jab. all of the um, Republicans who are pushing these talking points, we know that they're um, inoculated. And Fox News, which pushes all of these anti-vax talking plays, you cannot go into the building where Fox News is filmed if you can't show proof of vaccination. Like, it's the most disgusting hypocrisy. But it is killing people by the thousands in America. Like, every every morning I wake up and I get all these American news feeds about, like, thousands of children. There are 5,000 children who are in hospital with coronavirus in Florida. Like yeah. it is absolutely ransacking these communities these sort of proud anti-vaxxers, whatever. Those talking points, those American talking points are being replicated by George Christensen and he had just the disgusting temerity to do it in the parliament the other day. And I just want people to be aware of the fact that somebody, Ronnie Salt, who's a friend of ours, who's a really great tweeter and publishes a lot of really interesting stuff, she worked out that when Craig Kelly uh, is most active on Facebook is around two or three o'clock in the morning, which is very interesting because that's really when the news cycle starts in the United States. And it's like, why would an Australian MP be pushing all of these lines at two or three o'clock in the morning? Like, why is that happening? Who exactly is he trying to communicate at that particular point in the day? Well, they've become they've become very much the mouthpieces for for these foreign. You know these foreign powers, these foreign manipulators, these foreign agents. It's a, it's a really disturbing um, scenario. And it, I mean, in the end, Morrison did vote with the ALP in the House of Reps to condemn um, George Christensen. He wouldn't name him in his own speech. He refused. He, he didn't actually talk about George Christensen, which in itself is interesting. I mean, Pauline Hanson <laughs> has tweeted her support, of course. Pauline Hanson from One Nation, people might remember One Nation, went to the US before the last election trying quite you know, openly and brazenly to get support from some of these groups. Um, as you say, Craig Kelly has just been in it up to his eyeballs. He got booted off Facebook for a while for misinformation. Um, Jared Rennick, uh, who... People He's a senator know. from Queensland, by the way, everybody. Jared Rennick, just in case you have no idea who he is. Absolute accidental senator, pre-selected into what was considered an unwinnable spot, has some outlandish positions around childcare um, and getting rid of subsidies on childcare because, you know, we, we wouldn't want children raised by the state as opposed to raised by their parents. This is the sort of thing he says. Says that superannuation has to be killed off. Um, thinks that there's a conspiracy between pharmaceutical companies and social media companies. Oh, by the way, everybody, he's Liberal National Party. He's not One Nation, Renny. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, he's he's our He sits in the party room with Scott Morrison, and he thinks that childcare is a conspiracy to turn children into communists. All right, and, great. And, and and spouts these these far right foreign talking. <laughs> I learned things. communism from my parents. God damn you, Renick, you <laughs> fool. Well, I mean, I find the idea that he he 
talks about a conspiracy between pharmaceutical companies and social media companies being the reason why we have COVID lockdowns. And he uses social media platforms to say this. I mean, this kind of group of men, and they are all men, you know, they, they talk about how they're victims of being silenced while they go on national television. You know, they talk about being the victims of social media conspiracies on social media. Like they're just, they're not quite, uh, they're not quite with us, right? But they're they're picking up these things, as you say, Van. They're getting the the morning news cycle from America and trying to embed it here. And they're part of the government. They're 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 in the government. They are far right agitators who are participating in an international disinformation network as part of a foreign influence operation. This is true. Like these these are actually true things to say because we can track them through the internet. I'm going to talk about George Christensen, and I do want you all to read my book Q and on and on. Not only because that's how I can afford to eat and put a roof over my head, but also because it's about disinformation and it's about the role that these internet cults have played in a disinformation network. So on January 6th, there was the the terrible riots instigated by Donald Trump uh, at the Capitol building in the United States. People died. It was terrible. Police described a medieval battle scene. We all saw how brutal it was. And it was an attempted mm. coup. They were marching on that building to hang the vice president and to somehow swing the election to Donald Trump despite the fact that he had lost it by 8 million votes. Like it yeah. was an attempt at a coup d'etat. They presumed the military would support them. I don't think they realised the, the military had actually been planning to stop them. So that that happened and it, it all went south. It all went terribly wrong. The police did fight back. The reinforcements did turn up. Finally, the National Guard got there. They were driven out of the building and hundreds of people have been arrested. They've arrested more than 600 people, I think, as of today. Yeah. Now... Because that went so terribly badly, isn't it funny that this internet rumour started, it was posed by a small-time conservative radio talk show host in the United States on January 6th who said, oh, look, they just don't look like Trump supporters to me, which was interesting because they look pretty much like Trump supporters as I would understand it. Um, So one can only presume that they were secretly Antifa or Black Lives Matter, you know, up to their usual dastardly tricks. This guy had an audience of about 13,000, but the tweet got picked up and it started getting a lot of retweets. Then a radio host who was sitting in for Rush Limbaugh, who has died in the, the Rush Limbaugh show, which Rush Limbaugh show without Rush Limbaugh, he was like, oh, well, you know, people on Twitter are saying that they don't look like Trump supporters. They look like Antifa or BLM. And I'm like, that's a lot of white people for a BLM much, but let's, yeah. let's get going. So all of a sudden that goes out to millions of radio listeners in a very conservative space. And, of course, the as I call them, the dogs on social media, like the compliant, obedient you know, like neo-fascists, yeah. they will start tweeting this as well. Then an article comes out in the Washington Times. The Washington Times is owned by the Unification Church, who most people would understand to be the Moonies. Remember Sun, Sun Myung Moon and the, yeah, the yeah, Moonie Church? Yeah. The Washington Times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's total yeah. cult. Yeah. Um, they're the ones who used to have the mass weddings. Yeah. Um, they put out this article in the newspaper that they own saying that a facial recognition company in the United in, in, that's based in Singapore had identified two of the protesters as being from um, BLM and Antifa. Now that social media, that facial recognition company picked up on this almost immediately because you know they'd obviously had some kind of global search going on name mentions and yep. got their lawyers to issue a cease and desist and went, "This is completely untrue. We have never said this. There is no evidence for this. In fact, we can tell you that these two guys in this photo are neo-fascists, and we've got photos of them involved in neo-Nazi stuff and the rest of it." Now, it took the Washington Times 24 hours to issue the correction and retraction of this false story, by which time the Washington Times piece had been shared like 300,000 times and been picked up by Fox News, Laura Ingraham and Sarah Palin, former Republican vice presidential candidate, on their shows both talked about it and preceded this whole total lie that that really what happened on January 26th was BLM or Extinction Rebellion or Antifa or all these mysterious leftists who managed to get all these Trump costumes in the middle of the night. 
Mm. Now, it was a total lie. It was a total fabrication that had been pushed through a disinformation network online because people wanted to believe it. And I can tell you now, like, I've been following these people for a year. They're definitely QAnon people. Like, they're absolutely positively QAnon people who are involved in that demonstration. Hands down, the FBI has proved this. You know, like there, there are now hundreds of people who are desperately trying to stay out of jail who are giving testimony about how they were incited to go to that demonstration by Donald Trump. And, um, and- but guess who shared the Washington Times piece? Guess who jumped on that bandwagon? Guess who refused to retract uh, their accusations even after the Washington Times had backed down? Can you guess, Ben? Can you guess who participated in this fake story? Was it George Christensen? And Craig Kelly. Ben wins a banana for being very smart. Yes, two members of the Parliamentary Liberal National Party Caucus, members of the government in Australia, pushed a blatant lie which had already been exposed as a lie and they refused to back down. They refused to retract it. They pushed a lie. And I want to clarify here, Craig Kelly at the time was a member of the Liberal National Party government. He's now on the crossbench and simply guarantees supply and the positions of the Liberal Party uh, and National Party government. It, it, it's, it's just amazing to, to, to make those connections and to realise that Scott Morrison's government, for all of its kind of pork barrelling and, and um, you know, the, the car porking and all the rest of it, um, all of the corruption and all of the scandal and all of the recycling of used ministers who are just complete failures, that underpinning all of that, you've got these characters who are acting on misinformation provided by foreign powers and foreign agents. And Morrison does nothing about it. You kind of go, look, you know, the, the union campaign to get respect in the in the workplace for women based on all the mistreatment of women in parliament, you know, that's a really great campaign. We get where that's coming from. We can conceptually see, you know, why that's happening um, and conceptually see the answer. When you hear stuff like this, you know, it boggles the mind. Like it, it conceptually is difficult to go, there are members of our government who are repeating misinformation ceded to them by foreign agents. Like that's a that's a hard thing to 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 go, oh yeah, that's just that's just the daily business of the Morrison government. You know? Well, it is the daily business of the Morrison government. I mean, this is what this is what we have to accept in this country now that yeah. the, that the authoritarian disease, you know, the neo-fascist contamination, it's here. It's in the government. And I say this to liberal voters: like where I am in Sydney at the moment is I'm in a liberal seat right now, and a lot of my mother's neighbours who are perfectly lovely individuals are liberal voters. Okay, and yeah. there's an obviously I ideologically disagree with them, but I don't think they're bad people. I don't think they're evil people. I don't think they're represented by George Christensen. I think they would be absolutely horrified to think that the votes that they've exercised in good faith, thinking they were supporting like a centre-right traditionally, you know, traditionally sort of fiscally conservative political party, were going to these absolute loons who hang out with hard-right fascists. It's like a lot of people in this community uh, from families that emigrated to Australia after World War II to get away from the legacy of fascism. And I don't and think I'm quite aware that the votes that they exercise are being used to support it. I, and I think, Van, you're absolutely right. And there's two issues I think that have have made it into the, the mainstream consciousness. And it's interesting that this same cadre um, of people uh, really represent uh, regression for the Liberal Party on these other two issues. That is the rights of women uh, and respect for women in the workplace, but also climate action because it's the same group. Of, and I think there is a shift among certainly uh, the sorts of Sydney, let's say, Sydney Liberal voters, New South Wales and Victorian Liberal voters who would vote for a sort of centre-right, fiscally conservative, um, you know, type of government uh, who see what's happening with women in the workplace, women in parliament, the the, the treatment of women, and now with climate action, uh, and who are horrified. Yet it's this same cadre, isn't it, of, of MPs and senators who are really holding back, who are 
I think Matt Canavan is is actually doing the same media rounds, uh, talking about how you know climate action would destroy jobs and you know it's all nonsense and you know Jared Rennick talks about it being a conspiracy. The same kind of far right talking points that that occur in other countries as well, but they're being quite successful here. They're having quite an influence over Morrison when it comes to things like climate, aren't they? But this is the thing: they don't reflect the overwhelming majority of Liberal voters. And this is what I'm finding really stunning, like, politically. Like, these people who have sort of gone along with a brand and an image that represents something that now lives in the past, you know, this idea of sort of the Menzies Liberal where, you know, it was about not really changing anything and keeping Australia in, a, in being relaxed and comfortable, you know, that sort of conservative yeah. torpor and, okay, look, I disagree with that ideologically, but I understand that it has an appeal to a certain kind of person with a certain kind of worldview. And that's democracy and we have to talk to one another. That's how we make this whole show work. But I genuinely do not believe that your average Australian liberal voter it feels represented by people who go on neo-fascist talk shows. I genuinely no. don't. I and do I- not think that your average liberal voter in this country thinks that women should be second-class citizens or should be trapped in the home without childcare to stop children from turning into communists. I think the three threat of communism in this country is quite small, you know, sad as that makes me on the occasional day, but we are where we are. Um, and, I, and I also don't think that your average Liberal voter wants their house to burn down in some kind of ongoing climate catastrophe. I, I think they're looking at the images that are coming from Greece and, you know, the unprecedented fires in Greece and mudslides and, and those horrible floods in Germany mm. and what we got, had went through in Australia with those terrible bushfires and what's going on in California. I think they're putting the pieces together as quite rational, well, sane citizens in a democracy going, this is a problem that has to be solved. Well, they and are. then this that's lunacy the, the, that's coming out of the liberal yeah. absolute lunacy, which well, this is, kill I us all. Talk, ben, I want to talk about I want to talk about climate action because it is it is coming through that 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 you know in polls that the liberal uh, voters in the coalition, the people who vote liberal, do want to see more action on climate change. Um, I do want to quickly just say on that that issue around um, respect for women in the workplace. Um, Australian unions are running a great campaign about respect at work. There's there's been recommendations about that sitting with the government for over a year. Check out Australian unions. They're doing heaps of work. Every union is doing heaps of work in that space. But on climate, there's been a report. The IPCC has come out with a report this week and and most of the world <laughs> has, has gone, this is very serious. This is a very serious situation. The, the carbon dioxide levels are at the highest they've been for two million years, right? Two million years. Uh, in the last 30 years, we've released as much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere as we had over the entire course of human history up until the year 1990. So that's troubling. Um, and we are on track to warm the planet by one and a half degrees since 1990, taking into account another 20 years, so over 50 years, by one and a half degrees, and it took a 1,000 years to get that level of warming prior to that 50-year period. Temperatures will be the hottest on this planet they've been for 3 million years, which is longer than human beings have been on the planet full stop. And they're saying that we need to cut global emissions by 45% by the year 2030. That's only, well, eight and a bit years away if we're going to get to net uh, net zero by 2050. Like that's a, that's a hugely troubling set of numbers. And Morrison's response to this, um, driven on by some of these characters we've talked about, the Canavans, the Kellys, Barnaby who Joyce is another one. Who sit in his party room, who sit in his party room where the decisions about what the government are going to do are made. Yeah, and he and he says there won't be a blank check, and and that the developing world makes up two thirds of global emissions, and you know we have to deal with this at a global level, uh, and there needs to be some kind of technology breakthrough. That's how we're going to solve the problem. I mean, can, it's- we, can Morrison explain where we're going to get this technology breakthrough, given the fact that we've got declining funding in universities and in scientific research in this country? Like, where is 
the technology breakthrough coming if you're not actually resourcing the means by which we can develop technology? Like science, innovation, these are not things that the Morrison government has been investing in. Universities in this country are a total disaster. They are a mess, like casualised stuff. Like who does he think that effects? Um, Like an entire generation of policymakers actually, Scott. That is who what you are doing to universities affects. There's a real... There's a real problem in the logic here, right? Because per capita, Australia is one of the largest emitters of carbon. We we know that. We've known that for a long time. You know, the AFR this week called for a price on carbon. Um, interestingly, you know, Michael Stutchbury, who I don't particularly like and who um, clash with on a number of issues, has had a pretty consistent course about saying there needs to be a price on carbon. The rest of the world will do this. Australia is going to need to do it too. Gosh, if only the political party in government had actually legislated a ban. I'm having some weird kind of flashback. I know, right? Was it a dream? Well, Did I dream that there was once a government that put in a price on carbon? I'm I know. quite if sure only, If only there had been media organisations prepared to defend such a, such a, uh, such a government from unwarranted and unscrupulous attack. But but this is the issue, right? We emit 17 tonnes oh, of carbon. It was what the women of Australia were thinking about when they were doing the ironing. Don't you yeah, remember? Yeah, well, 17 tonnes of carbon per person in Australia, right? I wanna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep us focused on this because this idea that, oh, well, the developing world makes up two-thirds of global emissions, yeah, not per person because the developing world makes up far more than two-thirds of the population of the planet, Right, that's the point. Is that we we emit seventeen tons per person. China, who still manufactures most of the stuff we buy, is only emitting five point four tons per person. Now, no question, China needs to reduce its carbon footprint. But if we say China needs to reduce its carbon footprint, so do we, and and we need to do that with a plan that the government leads. At the moment, he's talking in circles about, oh, well, we'll have a plan to do a plan that'll make a plan for us to achieve our plan. And it's like, mate, you're the prime minister. It's your job to create the plan and and execute it, not pretend that the magic technology fairies will somehow solve this problem. Can I have a rant? Can I have a little rant? (laughs) Can I stop you? (laughs) I don't don't think you can because we're not in the same room. So you you can't stop me. I'm getting really angry, right, because as you know, as everybody who listens to this show knows, I'm an environmentalist. Like I've been on this for a while. Like I'm committed to it and I try, and you know this, you know this to your own personal discomfort, I try to lead as environmentally responsible and sustainable life I possibly can. And I know that means that you, we buy things that don't have plastic on them and that makes you unhappy sometimes, but we do it because we're committed to it. And we we have the rainwater tanks and we use the recycled water and the solar and the whole thing. We do as much as we possibly can. And I think everyone who is rational and sensible does try to do as much as they can. But without government leadership and legislation, our capacity to do as much as we can is really limited. And there was this extraordinary moment on afternoon briefing, which because I'm living with my mother, I've got to the habit of watching. My mother is one of those feral ABC people. Um, And we watch afternoon briefing and I get very angry at the government, as you can imagine. But Matt Cain from New South Wales, he's the New South Wales Environment and Energy Minister, and he's a Liberal, obviously, and he was on. And he was saying the things that we wanted people to say about how George Christensen is just, you know, a lying disinformation agent um, who was a threat to public health in every way. Um, but he was also talking about how, so Matt Keane is sort of held up as like the environment movement in the Liberal Party and what it should be like because he's an eager beaver and he's like, there are business solutions to this and we can make this happen and we can use markets in order to, you know, help the environment. And he's, you know, very he's very pro doing something. But unfortunately he's very pro doing something in a very Liberal Party kind of way. And it was like, you know, if you're at home, there's something that you can do um, about the – because he was asked about the IPCC report and he was like, there's something you can do and then switch your energy provider, switch to an energy provider that supports renewable energy. And I'm just like – how about the government nationalise energy supply and actually put all of these physical changes in process? It shouldn't be a consumer decision whether you want the planet to stay alive or not. That's a decision that a government makes identifying a problem and impose, imposing a solution. That's actually why government exists. 
And it was sure. just so frustrating because this guy is held up as, oh, well, you know, these are solutions and the market can solve this. It's like the market has got us to the point where the IPC <laughs> has said we've basically got nine years until we all burn to death. That's where the market has got us, friends. I think we're back in the strong state solutions and actually taking over the industries to make sure that it's not up to consumers to make decisions. It is up to a government to legislate what reality is going to goddamn look like. Well, because the reality is we know that if you say to someone you can save $17 a month on your electricity but your grandkids will be burned alive uh, in the future that you won't see, people will burn their grandkids' future. Like that's unfortunately people will make that decision. We know they make that decision. That consumer behaviour happens every day and the likes of Matt Canavan and George Christensen and Tony Abbott you know, they make that point. They've they built a politic around that to say, you know, Barnaby Joyce, the $150 leg of lamb, you know, do you want to pay $150 for a leg of lamb? Well, you know, because if if you if you save the future, that's what it costs. Well, no, 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 no. That's not what it costs. That's not what it costs. That's what it costs if you allow people like Barnaby Joyce and George Christensen and Matt Canavan to profiteer and allow their friends to profiteer. But if you take collective action, if we come up with collective solutions and we have a strong state-based system, then the solutions are funded by those who can most afford them, which is actually the Barnaby Joyce's, Matt Canavan's, Craig Kelly's and George Christensen's of the world and their mates. Oh, and it just, and it enrages me. It, it enrages me as a laborist socialist to constantly be told, be told the climate action will cost jobs. What an absolute blatant lie. The jobs of the future, and Joe Biden made this point when he was on the electoral drain, when he was like, you say, when you talk about, climate action and I talk I talk about climate jobs there are jobs in this there are massive jobs in revegetation and reforestation and offshore wind and solar and batteries and energy maintenance and supply and wind power and manufacture Australia is the only sovereign nation where every single component you need to make a battery is available and it, it, and it's heartbreaking for me that that point was made by Bill Shorten in his launch of the electoral campaign at the last election in 2019 it was in the speech where he was like this is what we're going to do we're going to create new manufacturing around the climate challenge and bring the people with us with jobs this is our promise to Australia and it was underreported and people didn't want to engage with it and you had a bunch of people who claimed to be the environment movement who attacked short and undermined him you know like the turning this ridiculous like fight about Adani, a mine that was not being built, which is still not being mm. built, which is still not happening, when the actual mechanisms and opportunities to change the discussion about climate action in Australia were there. They were in the ALP pitch. And if Labor had been elected, we would have been in a much different situation. But, of course, it was better to play political point scoring and, and undermine our only opportunity for change. And I yeah, sorry, say, I'm ranting, ranting, no, ranting. It's all right, but I do want to say on that point that, again, this is where the role of unions is so important and the role of government and the role of unions in, in making and influencing and shaping government policy is important because there's a real-life example, right, the Port Keppel uh, example in Victoria where there are there is currently being imported into this country um, towers for wind turbines that could be made here in Australia, uh, could be made in Victoria, and the AMWU and the AWU have made the point to the Morrison government that instead of allowing the importation of these towers from overseas, they should be supporting the manufacture of them right here in Australia, in Victoria, in fact. There is a, a manufacturer who was making them and then the foreign-owned company decided to use, lo and behold, manufacturing from the country where they're from rather than the country where they'll be generating the electricity and generating the profit. Uh, and, of course, the Morrison government with its neoliberal trickle-down economic theories has simply allowed this. Now, the AMWU and the AWU have been doing a good job fighting hard against this, but it's one of those things where if you want to see uh, environmental action in this country and you want to see 
good jobs in this country and you want to see jobs that improve our environment and improve our living standards, you've got to join your union. You've got to go to australianunions.org.au forward slash wow, W-O-W, join your union. Like if you're an environmentalist who wants to see a planet we can live on and jobs that are sustainable, join your union because the union movement came out very strongly on that IPCC report and and has consistently consistently called for strong climate action. It has worked hard with environment groups, with business groups. I mean, you know, I've been part of some of those discussions and I can tell you that on things where there are adversaries on so many other issues, when it comes to do we want Australia to be a powerhouse of renewable energy jobs, of environmental jobs, of jobs that have a future, there's a lot of agreement about that, except it seems from Morrison and his foreign agent friends, Canavan and Kelly and Christensen, who seem to continue to push these lines that they get from overseas that stand in the way of Australian jobs and a better environment. It's just unbelievable. Oh, it is absolutely unbelievable. And I think if, and I genuinely believe that the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of Australians think it's disgusting. Yeah. You know, I think there there is common ground in this country that we want there to be Australian jobs and we want kids to have opportunities and we want kids who don't go off to university to become senior economists at KPMG, but we want opportunities for apprenticeships and working in your community and doing something meaningful, like having a job that actually makes the world a better place. I think all of us want that. You know, Absolutely. like a, a, a fair day's pay for a fair day's work and safe communities and clean communities and clean air and clean water and beautiful forests. And I, I, I was one of those people who watched Back to Nature, that show on the ABC because my mother's the ABC nut. And, you know, it's impossible to not be moved by how unbearably beautiful this country is. Just what an incredible, incredible place that we genuinely have the blessing to live. And I think all of us want to maintain and protect that apart from the foreign influence opera- like operators who are in the federal government, who I genuinely don't think have ever sat there and gone, Jesus Christ, this country is so beautiful. You know what I mean? Like I don't really yeah. get the feeling that Craig Kelly is taking a lot of snaps of, you know, the gorges and the valleys. <laughs> I just no, I really think, I get that yeah. feeling, you know. Seems um, videoing uh, himself uh, sitting in his own in his own backyard bouncing a ball like he's a, a prisoner um, and, and because of COVID lockdowns. And, and, Van, we do need to move on to talk about uh, COVID because it is a year in here we are a year a year of the week on Wednesday and 18 months into into COVID um, but I miss to, you I, I really miss you, miss you. I, miss I you really too. miss you and this lockdown is doing my head in everyone can you tell can you tell I think it's doing I think it's doing everyone's head in I do want to acknowledge that two people did die today in New South Wales <laughs> a man in his 90s and a man in his 30s um, as a man in his 30s, I'm I'm really disturbed by the way that was handled by Premier Gladys Berejiklian, um, and the sort of the sort of almost dismissive element that he had some underlying health conditions or some other health conditions. Um, lots of people do, lots of people do, um, and that's not uh, that's no reason to to dismiss what is clearly a very premature death. Um, and oh, our thoughts it's just, go it's, to, to their families. It's awful. So we're, we've now hit the 300 people a day, new infections daily average in New South Wales. That's what yeah. we're up to now. And everybody f- said this would happen. Everybody, oh, no, no, New South Wales is the gold standard. Gold standard. This is the gold standard. What? Well, there are 5,000 active cases of COVID in New South Wales today, more than 5,000, and... As you say, Van, over 344 cases today. I saw one prediction from an epidemiologist um, last night that suggested if this rate continues, uh, New South Wales will get to over 900 cases a day by the end of August. I hope that's a I hope that's a wild prediction. Um, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not in. I'm not a modelist. I'm not doing any of that. Um, uh, so I hope that's a wild and inaccurate prediction, but that's that's one epidemiologist's prediction. There are Dubbo has gone into lockdown this afternoon while we've been 
while we've been talking. It joins Newcastle, the Hunter, Byron, the Northern Rivers area, Armadale and Tamworth in lockdown. And there are 62 people in ICU. Uh, I think one of the really telling things about the New South Wales situation is obviously Gladys has put a lot of faith in the idea that we're all going to be um, vaccinated and that that will somehow get them get get them out of trouble and and I get it like the the numbers are, are that if you're double vaccinated you're not in ICU right no one in ICU has had both the vaccination and only five of the 62 um, have had any form of vaccine any shot at all right so I get that number but the the reality is to to get to those 80 percent numbers that that Gladys keeps talking about, you know, we're millions of people short. Today was a record day. Today was the record day for vaccinations in Australia. And we would need to sustain this rate. We would need to do the record every day in order to get to the numbers that Gladys is talking about by Christmas. Now, maybe we will, you know, maybe maybe we will. And I hope, you know, that that happens because at the moment they don't really seem to have like a plan other than everyone will be vaccinated and we'll all be home by Christmas. It sounds a bit fantastical to me. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's nonsense. <laughs> like, it's, well, you're living just, it, Van. That's the I'm point. I'm living it. I'm living it. It's total, utter nonsense. They've lost control of the virus. Can we pretend any different, really? It does feel like, like they're pretending. I mean, today, yes, there was. Um, there's been a record day of vaccinations, and thank God for that. Thank God. But it, like, unless we maintain this level and exceed it with vaccinations, we're trapped in this. We are trapped. We are prisoners of of Morrison and Berger clan liberal government ineptitude. All of us. Every single person in New South Wales is trapped in their failure to actually run any of the things they were supposed to do properly. And, you know, Ben, it's like the rhetoric from them is just disgusting. So the line from them now, like I I couldn't watch the New South Wales briefing today because I was just too angry. I'm just Mm. like I haven't seen my partner in two months, you know, (laughs) like – and it, and it and was it, um it was, no their line is well could we have done things better in hindsight of course we could have done things better and it's like do you know that's not responsibility or accountability no responsibility or accountability is like we absolutely got this wrong we are so desperately sorry there should be an election and you can yeah. make you as people can make a decision about whether we're capable of learning from our mistakes or not that's really the only morally conscionable thing they could do at the moment. It reminds and me of World War II when the Liberal Party, by the way, or sorry, it wasn't the Liberal Party, it was the United Australia Party at the time, just happened yeah. to have a lot of people who went on to become Liberals in it, like Robert Menzies, who was Prime Minister at the time. Yes. Remember when he decided to go to England and be part of a war cabinet when Australia was being invaded by the Japanese? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that- Obviously, it's a very stressful situation up there. Yeah. Um, I, I think, yes, and I, I'm aware of the fact that some boffin will be like, "Man, that didn't happen in 1941." Well, I think, Look, I know, yes. I know everybody. I know the dates around the Second World War. I'm being glib. I am I upset. Think, Van, the, thing point, the point that I want to get to here is that you know they have failed. Morrison hasn't rolled out the vaccine. It's being reported in Reuters, the BBC, the New York Times, all around the globe about how poorly the vaccine rollout has gone. We've commented here before about the fact they've had to bring in the army. Um, He's refusing to call an election because he's afraid. The the news poll clearly shows he would lose. Gladys is not going to call an election for much the same reason. Um, There is and it's not just New South Wales that's impacted, right? Though, you know, Victoria has had to extend its lockdown. These are all cases that have come up. These are all Delta cases. These are all cases that come because of what happened in New South Wales, because there was a refusal to put a ring of steel around the city of Sydney, because there was a sort of LGA by LGA, as though somehow COVID wouldn't jump the street uh, approach to this. Um, and they're not taking responsibility. And as a result, we've seen outbreaks in southeast Queensland. We've seen Cairns. Cairns will come out of a lockdown uh, today, which is great to see. They've only had four cases. But Victoria, its lockdown's been extended now until the 19th because this is so insidious, this Delta variant, and refusing to move quickly 
has has allowed it to spread. Refusing you know? to move quickly, refusing to make the lockdown even harder, refusing to pay people to stay home, refusing to engage with the most vulnerable communities, refusing to have anybody in the room with who has the kind of cultural experience that could aid the decision-making process. Just an absolute refusal to do any of the things that would change the situation. Madness is repeating something that has already failed again and again and again and again and we are trapped physically trapped in that madness. My faith in the New South Wales government is so low that I bought a second tracksuit. Like <laughs> I'm just I'm just aware of the fact that this is all I'm going to be wearing like for the next few months because well, I have literally no faith in their capacity to turn it around. I think Brad Hazard's public sucking when he's faced with criticism and it's just so obvious they are not used to getting the hard questions. But now it is biting. It is really biting everybody and everybody's angry. Like I said, at the moment I'm in a Liberal seat, God help me, and the community here are kicking off about it. What's Berejiklian doing? What the hell is Morrison doing? Why is this such an absolute disaster? Guy Sebastian, a man who I have never called comrade before, came out against Brad Hazard yesterday going, why are you speaking to us like we're stupid children? Why is this happening? It was just, it's like you can't get away from it here, the level of frustration. And I think it's certainly in the wake of being told that everything was fine and everything was going to be okay. You know, all these people who were telling me that as a Victorian I was overreacting and, oh, you know, you're just being so critical. It's not like that here. Well, everybody's cracking up. People are cracking up in New South Wales because there's no hope, there's no faith. You know, Daniel Andrews copped so much criticism in Victoria, but there was not a single rational person who watched Andrews make the hard decisions who didn't think, well, he's doing it for a reason. Like, and the harder decisions that were made in Victoria, the more I think it convinced people was this was our way out, that this is what had to happen. And it's not like that in New South Wales because nobody really wants to make decisions as hard as they could possibly be because they don't want to be compared to Daniel Andrews because they made such a big culture war thing out of it that we're now living in this like post-sense political reality that if a culture war decision is made by one side and that side is the right, they are the ones who are in charge, they are the ones who did everything they possibly could to get elected by pursuing these insane culture wars all over the world, you know, and and we the rest of us just get trapped in the consequences of them running electoral campaigns and political point scoring on the basis of nonsense. So, yes, we don't need to do this, we don't need to do that. Well, now here we are, two months, haven't seen my partner, haven't seen my dog in two months, haven't been to my own home in two months. There are 40,000 Australians or 36,000 Australians trapped overseas and now if they do get back, they can't leave again. Like, you're right, Van, it is the consequence the consequence of the Matt Canavan, George Christensen, you know, Craig Kelly spreading of misinformation is that governments like Morrison's create a position that then they can't back down from. Governments like Gladys, you know, the woman who saved Australia, that, that kind of propaganda creates a political, a political um, platform Right, but it's not a, a platform that's used to empower the rest of us. It's a platform that they're constantly afraid that they'll slip and hang from, right? And as a result, they dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And the the kind of merry, um, oh, it's all going to be fine, and we're going to get to eighty percent vaccination. Oh, we'll get to seventy percent. Oh, we'll get to fifty percent. There'll be a technology oh. fairy that turns up. <laughs> It's, ben, it's, the technology fairy is coming. The technology fairy is always coming, just like Santa, who is completely real. The cost, the cost of the misinformation campaigns, the cost of the foreign propagandists, is that it allows the the fascists to position governments in ways that deeply impact, deeply impact all of us in our health, in our well being, in our livelihoods, in the kinds of responses that that we're allowed to make in the communities well, that we live in. This is what I want people to be really aware of and about, you know, we talk about the Canberra bubble, right? And the Canberra yeah. bubble is actually, you know, for a government of Australia, a pretty closed information environment. Like it, it, Scott Morrison is not, he's not casually observing 
at how real people go about their lives. He's apparently been finding people in his electorate, including my friend's mother, um, which right. was apparently quite a memorable conversation for how that particularly went down. Not quite sure that one was one he chose to use the photographer for, I've got to say. Um, but he's been, you know, and doing this pretense that, oh, being in touch with the average person. The average person in New South Wales is screaming with frustration about the present situation. But Scott Morrison is not going to the supermarket here. He's not, you know, engaging in the way that we are. Gladys Berejiklian does this, oh, I'm just like you, I'm from a migrant family act. No, you're not. You're the Premier of New South Wales. You know, like you're not socialising or being de-socialised the way the rest of us are. You're going to press conferences, love. You're having meetings. The rest of us aren't doing that. Like... And the the issue is that they see someone like Craig Kelly. Craig Kelly's got gets enormous Facebook play. He gets like millions of hits. He's one of the biggest Facebook presences in Australia. And they see that and they think, oh, he represents a lot of people. And it's like he represents a lot of lunatics. And if you think that he represents a million Australians, you are dead wrong. With posts coming out at 2 o'clock in the morning, he's not speaking to Australians. He's speaking to an American audience. It is an illusion. There is an illusion of popularity around these people. And this is the thing to remember. January 6th, that all the, you know, happy little brown shirts were getting behind, they were only a few thousand people. The Trumpists could mobilise votes behind Trump, but they couldn't actually turn that into a street into a street presence or a military presence that actually had a dangerous capacity at that time. And that's why my question to people, like to Liberal voters, to centre-right Liberal voters is this. Is what we're going through now literally better than having a Labor government? That's the question. Like would you rather the kind of leadership that they've had in Queensland, Western Australia and um, Victoria, that kind of leadership that made hard decisions, that was prepared to be unpopular, that put in borders and did all of those things, or would you prepare to live or, or is that so anathema to you that you would rather live in the ongoing nightmare, which is New South Wales? So what's the question? Where would you feel most faith and hope about your immediate future? With these Liberal governments or with those Labor governments? Because that's literally the choice. That is literally the choice. Look, Van, I want to move on to some good news because we've dealt with some pretty heavy topics here and I think we've made some interesting connections about misinformation, the COVID situation. Disinformation. Misinformation is when it's unintentional. Disinformation Disinformation. is when it's entirely intentional. That's a good point and that's a good correction. So the good news. The good news is, as as you sent to me, Whiskey fueled trucks. I mean, cool. this is this Glenn is got to be Glenfiddich. Yeah, you're not averse to a Glenfiddich, are you? I am not adverse to a Glenfiddich. As anyone who's ever had a night uh, on the town with me would be aware. Yes, <laughs> yes. As a person who's lived in the consequences of those nights, let me tell you, Ben is quite the fan. Um, yeah. As everyone knows, I'm far too pious to drink. If anyone from Glenfiddich is uh, listening, just, you know. <laughs> well, you know, if anyone from Glenfiddich is listening um, and wants to sponsor the show, I'm about to give you a great plug because I think what you even as a pious teetotaler, I think right. what you're doing is fantastic. So they are using closed-loop production. Closed loop is like the dream of environmentalists. It's when uh, producers of products look at their systems and go, how can we ab- like minimise um, our wastage? Because environmental destruction is about waste. This is why I hate yeah. capitalism because capitalism is about competition. Competition creates waste and waste is bad for the environment. Yep. Glenfiddich have looked at the products, the waste products of their whiskey production, and gone, how can we how can we close the loop so we're not just creating these waste products? How can we look at their relationship to energy and minimize our carbon footprint? They are powering their delivery trucks with whiskey waste. So they're this creating is- a biofuel. <laughs> So this is amazing. So this means that if I drink more whiskey, I'm helping the environment more, right? Well, (laughs) if we bring this technology to Australia and use it in our own domestic whiskey production, yes. Because it is a bit naughty. It is not quite in the spirit of what they're doing for you to buy Glenfiddich that then gets on a plane that burns heaps of carbon to get here. Like, sorry to break it to you, champ, unless it's coming by solar boats. And a shout-out to my friend Terry Butler, environmental champion, the member for Griffith in uh, Queensland, um, who has has shared my love of social boats, uh, social boats, solar boats in the the parliament and is with me on uh, transport solutions to the environmental crisis. So I love her, by the way. Terry Butler, I just think she's the greatest. Um, um, can I just Glenn say Fiddy, that? Yeah. 
so on on this, the the numbers are amazing too, right? So, um, the 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 biofueled trucks of Glenfiddich using Glenfiddich whiskey waste will remove two hundred and fifty tons of CO two, which is equal to four thousand trees. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It that's reduces amazing. their carbon imprint by 99%. That's that's incredible. Because they looked at their their they looked at their production, they innovated within that production line. They went, how can we make this? How can how can we how can we use what we've got to make a better product that reduces our impact? And this is what they've done. Glenfiddich is not is not going to taste any worse by the fact that they've looked at opportunities in their production process to do something better. In you fact, know what I mean? Like, in fact, it'll, it'll taste a bit sweeter. Taste all the more sweet. Well, <laughs> I think that concludes our fiftieth, our one year anniversary episode of the week on Wednesday. It is a long episode and hopefully you feel you've got your money's worth given that it's free. Um, We really want to thank everybody who has listened to the show over the last 12 months. What a journey. What a journey we have been on together, friends. It's, I mean, just incredible. It's been incredible. And the feedback from all of you, um, please do keep sharing. Do keep do keep listening, do keep sharing, keep talking about the issues, keep contacting us, letting us know. And, you know, we will get back to you. If we haven't got back to you yet, we will. Um, it is just such an incredible um, honour and privilege to get to do this show um, every week. And on, of course, the weekend wrap on Sundays where you get to hear me rant uh, about the things uh, that happen between Wednesday and Sunday. Uh, you know, to do this show with my partner, with the woman that I love, and our little dog, who I'm sure you've heard in the background again today, has just been an incredible, incredible honour. I hope we get to keep doing it for many, many more years to come. I want to thank our sponsor, Australian Unions. Once again, if you're not a member of a union, you know, that's how we make positive change. That's how we push back against the disinformation and the fascists. That's how we get better wages, better environment. It's how we make Australia a better place. So Australian This machine kills fascists. Join your union. .org.au slash wow to join your union. And, you know, Van and I might be separated by the Murray and a border, but, you know, we are all... And an uncontainable plague, but we are all in this together. And I think that's so important to remember. So please keep listening. Please stay strong. Do keep your spirits up. It's it's been a tough year, a tough year for many many Australians. But you know, together we can make brighter brighter times ahead. I love you. I love you too. Bye. Bye. <laughs>